0: if you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans 6, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 19. Um, really, I, I, I would love to have looked at the whole chapter. Um, it's it's just a, a, a beautiful chapter uh, that testifies to God's sanctifying grace of us in Christ Jesus. And, um, and uh, if, if you don't recognize that word or or know what that word means, sanctification, sanctify, then uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a few moments here. Uh, we are in a, a sermon series called The Unbreakable Chain of Salvation. And really what we're doing here is we're, we're talking about, um, when, when we say that God saves a person, what do we mean? Um, what, what what does God do to save his people? How, how does he apply the salvation that Jesus won for us 2,000 years ago on the cross and, and in the empty tomb? How does he apply that to our lives today? What does it look like for God to save a person? What does that do to them? What, does, what is he doing for them in salvation? We've just been going through for the last six Sundays and, and discussing what salvation is, and we've looked at uh, election and uh, the effectual call and regeneration, we've looked at conversion, we've looked at justification, we've looked at adoption, and now we come to the doctrine of sanctification. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Before we do, let's, uh, let's take a moment to pray together. Father, we, we wholeheartedly believe that um, apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, I cannot preach um, to the end that your people be conformed to Christ. Apart from you, your people here present this morning cannot listen and hear with hearts full of faith and gratitude to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we ask for help. We ask that you would empower the, the, the reading and proclamation of your word with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit so that your people might be made holy for the sake and glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I think that the best, uh, the, 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 reward, the award for, for best all-time opening line of a book ought to go to C.S. Lewis. There once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrubb, and he almost deserved it. It's just a great opening line. It's the opening line to the voyage of the Dawn Treader, and uh, early in the book, you, you see what he means. Eustace Clarence Scrubb is a twerp. He's horrible. Um, he, he's awful. He's unpleasant, to say the least. He's clueless. He's cowardly. He's greedy and rude, and almost, almost nobody likes being around him save his mother. And as you get further into the story, he and the Pavinzi children find themselves in the magical land of Narnia. And it's there in Narnia that Eustace undergoes something of a, of a transformation. And, and it happens in a, a kind of roundabout way. Uh, the, a, a sort of turning point in Eustace's story is when he falls asleep on a dragon's hoard, a, a, a pile of gold that he finds, this, this dragon's pile of gold that he finds on this mysterious island. And, and Lewis, Lewis says that when Eustace falls asleep on this dragon's hoard, uh, that, that Eustace had greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart. And somehow, mysteriously, uh, miraculously, Eustace wakes up a few hours later and he finds that he's been magically turned into a dragon. And in all reality, he'd been a dragon all along. He's just now realizing it in Narnia. But like any normal boy, he doesn't want to be a dragon. This is the most unpleasant to him. He doesn't want to be a dragon. He wants to be a boy. And so he's left longing for a chapter or two, longing to be restored again to his humanity, longing to to, to be a boy again. He's absolutely miserable. And in fact, this this misery uh, kind of... turns him into a, a, a little more pleasant to be around, even though he's a dragon now. Uh, rather than greedy and rude in his normal sort of way, he, he, uh, he uses his dragon powers to help the others, and, and, and he uses his strength to, as a dragon to help uh, them out in, in times of need. But his transformation is not yet complete until he comes into contact with Aslan. And Aslan approaches him one night as everyone else is asleep, and he calls Eustace to follow him. And Eustace says, I I, I knew I I had to do what he told me, so I followed him. And Aslan leads Eustace, uh, the the dragon, up to this this huge well on top of a mountain. And Eustace thinks he's supposed to get into the well, so he goes to do so. But Aslan tells Eustace, first you need to undress. And and Eustace is, is confused for a moment until he realizes that reptiles... Uh, and therefore dragons, have a sort of outer layer of skin that they can shed. And so Eustace tries and tries to to remove his scaly reptilian skin by scratching and ripping and tearing into his skin, But, but it's all to no avail. Eustace tries and tries until he gives up and he knows that it's no good. And at that point, Aslan says to him, you'll have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was, I was desperate now. So I just laid flat on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart and then he began pulling my skin off. It hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, Eustace says. And there... I was as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, softer than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It was the sharpest stinging pain, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. From this point on in the story, Eustace is a a different boys he's, com- he's a completely new person rather than cowardly he's courageous rather than than greedy he's gracious rather than rude and annoying he's he's pleasant and kind he's transformed now, as we move on in our series in the unbreakable chain of salvation we come to the doctrine of sanctification and now sanctification is is a biblical word and throughout the Scripture, it's used in, in different ways, but one of the ways it's used, and the way that we're, we often use when talking about the order of salvation, is to talk about what we call progressive sanctification. And that's the, the lifelong process wherein we become more righteous, more virtuous, more like Jesus. And it differs from, from the links that we've looked at so far. So we've looked at election. And if, if election is our being chosen... Sanctification is the mark of those who are chosen. We've talked about regeneration. If regeneration is birth, sanctification is growth. We've talked about conversion. Conversion being the moment that we begin to repent and believe. Sanctification is is the deepening and the the growing of that belief in repentance. We've talked about the doctrine of justification. If justification is, is the event wherein we are counted or declared righteous in Christ. Sanctification is the process of our becoming actually righteous. We've talked about adoption. If adoption is the event wherein we are declared to be children of God, sanctification is our growth in bearing the family resemblance. You see, sanctification is the process wherein we we become more holy, more righteous, more pure, more moral, more virtuous, more like Jesus. Sanctification happens when God brings us into this whole new world, just like the children were brought into the whole new world of Narnia and it 's there in this new world this this whole, this new world that we might call salvation land or this land that we might call in christ we 're there in this whole new world and it 's there where jesus Starts peeling off the layers of sin and wickedness and brokenness in our lives like Aslan tore off the the, the reptilian skin layer by layer off of Eustace. Only this doesn't take place in a single moment. This is a process. Sanctification is not merely an event, it's it's a process. It's the process of our sin being shed more and more and our becoming more and more like Jesus, more obedient, more holy, more righteous until we meet Christ in glory after we die or He comes. And that's what we find Paul discussing here in Romans 6, 15 to 19. It's it's something of, of a description and an exhortation to this life of sanctification, the sixth link in the unbreakable chain. If you'd like to stand with me, for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy to what Paul says concerning sanctification in Romans 6 here. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin. Which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So look with me here at the substance of sanctification, the source of sanctification, and the seeking of of sanctification, or, or rather the seeking of sanctification than the source of sanctification, I think is the order we're in here. So the substance, source, and seeking of sanctification. So first, the, the substance of sanctification. And, and, and what I want to talk about here is really just, I want to define what sanctification is. Something I want to offer something of a definition of it. So here in Romans, Paul has been explaining in depth the doctrine of, of justification through faith alone. And, and, and we saw this doctrine just a few weeks ago in Romans 3. And there, we, we saw that in justification, God counts us as righteous through faith alone, by grace alone, in Jesus alone. There's nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it. It's a free gift, right standing, and acceptance with God by grace through faith in Christ. But then, that, that brings up something of a question for some of us. And in Romans 6, Paul actually anticipates this question and addresses it head on. And that question is this, if our, if our sin no longer condemns us and we are justified freely in Christ, why not just sin all the more? Why not just continue in sin? If grace abounds, let's, let's live it up. And Paul's answer to that question is, is no, no, we, we don't sin all the more. Because in Christ, we not only receive the gift of justification, which is glorious in and of itself, but we also receive the gift of sanctification. So the, 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 the English word sanctification it comes from two Latin words being smushed together. Sanctus is the word for something being holy or set apart or sacred. And then the word faccio, which, which means to make or do, and you put them together, and it's a word that means to make holy, and that's a good translation, it's a good word to use for translating the Greek word here, because that's exactly what the Greek word means, it means to make holy, to set apart. And of course, there's a sense in which, at the moment we become Christians, we are objectively and definitively set apart, we're definitively sanctified. There's something that the New Testament theologians, or new theologians talk about in the New Testament, called definitive sanctification. And this definitive sanctification is seen in places like 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul calls the church in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Or in 1 Corinthians 6-11, again, Paul talks, he's talking to the Corinthian Christians and he tells them, you were sanctified, past tense, objective, definitive. And if you know anything about the church in Corinth, Paul had to have been talking about this kind of definitive sanctification, because the church in Corinth was a mess. They were a mess. But this this definitive sanctification is a a fixed reality given to us as a result of the aspects of salvation that we've already looked at. Regeneration. We're we're changed and filled with the Holy Spirit at the new birth. We're we're granted true belief and true repentance and, and conversion. We're justified in adopting, being given Uh, positional righteousness and and relational holiness. So in that sense, the church in Corinth and we who are in Christ are definitively holy and sanctified. We're saints, and nothing we do or, or don't do can change that. It's a gift given to us in Christ. It's fixed. But then still, even though we are definitively set apart as God's people, we still have indwelling sin, don't we? We still have indwelling sin. Scripture and experience would confirm this to us, sin doesn't rule our lives after the new birth, but it does survive, doesn't it? Sin doesn't doesn't rule our lives, but we each have remaining surviving sin in our lives. The Apostle John says in 1 John 1.8, he says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's still remaining sin and surviving sin in us as Christians. And so we don't only need definitive sanctification that comes with a new birth and justification and adoption, we also need the grace of progressive sanctification. That's the other kind of sanctification talked about in the New Testament. And this is what Paul is talking about here in Romans 6:19, when he says that, presenting ourselves to God in totality that's really definitive sanctification leads to sanctification. He's talking about progressive sanctification. Sanctification, this progressive sanctification, the process whereby we we become more righteous, more obedient, more like Jesus. And the Westminster Catechism, Q&A 35, sums up progressive sanctification very well when it says this. It says, Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That's what Paul is talking about here. Progressive sanctification is that process wherein our character and conduct is conformed more and more to the standard found in God's holy word. Wherein our actions and our deeds are more and more put in line with God's standards found in his word. Wherein our speech, becomes less harsh and crude and rude and more gracious and pure and gentle. Wherein even our thoughts, our feelings, our motivations, our intentions increasingly become purer and more selfless and more God-honoring. It's the process of spiritual renovation and moral change whereby God makes us good and pure and righteous in our hearts and our words and our deeds. And realize how this differs from justification then. Remember, Paul is talking a lot about justification here. Realize how this differs from justification. So justification is a once-for-all event wherein God declares you righteous in Jesus Christ. It's not a moral or spiritual change. It's a legal and relational change. Justification happens outside of you. You're counted righteous. Sanctification happens inside of you. You're actually made righteous. Justification happens in a single moment. Sanctification is this continual process. Justification is a legal verdict pronounced on you. Sanctification is the Spirit's work within you, bringing forth good works. Justification is objective. Sanctification is subjective. Justification is static. It's fixed. It's definitive. It's not changing because it's based on the righteousness of Christ, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever forever. And sanctification is this this dynamic experiential change, this spiritual reality wherein we are changed, become more like Jesus. And in Christ, we receive both. That we receive both. That's Paul's point in Romans 6. In Christ, we are justified, yes, but we don't continue in sin. We run from sin and kill sin and pursue righteous living because in Christ we're not only justified but sanctified. And, and the reformers, they used to call this the, the duplex gratia. They used to call this the, the double grace, the double grace that we receive in Christ. We celebrate this very reality whenever we sing that, that wonderful hymn, Rock of Ages. We say that Christ is the double cure he saves from wrath and makes us pure. He justifies and sanctifies. And we must, we must never separate the two because they both come in Christ Jesus. They both come from our relationship with Christ. But we should also never, we should never confuse them at the same time. Our sanctification does nothing to make us right with God. We're already fully and freely granted full status as righteous sons and daughters in our justification and adoption, fully accepted by God. There's nothing we could do to make us more or less accepted. Our level of sanctification does not at all affect or change our status before God. But if we are justified and adopted into God's family, sanctification will always follow. We will always live more and more into the righteousness that's already been declared over us. We will always grow more and more to be like our Heavenly Father. If we are justified in Christ, we are also sanctified. And that just makes sense, doesn't it? That just makes all the sense in the world. We don't just want to be set free from sin's condemnation and eternal consequences. We don't just want to be set free from that. We want to be set free from sin's power in our lives. We don't just want to be set free from the eternal condemnation and the eternal consequences of sexual immorality and drunkenness and lust and racism and greed and anger and violence and self-righteousness and materialism and the like, just to continue in those same kind of lifestyles. No, sin makes us miserable. Sin is awful. It's destructive. It destroys lives. It destroys families. It destroys churches and livelihoods. It destroys entire nations. Sin is awful. It's awful. And so we want to be set free from its grip and power in our lives as well. And what's more is God wants this for us. God, he loves us too much to not sanctify us if we're in Christ. Just like when, you, when a loved one sins against you, you want to forgive them, and you do. But you want more than that. You also want to see them set free from the destructiveness of the sin itself. And of course, you don't have the power and ability to do that in others, but God does. And so in addition to justifying us, he also sanctifies us so that we might be more free, more alive, more happy, more satisfied in him. But then that also brings us to the next point, the seeking of sanctification, because this is—if this is a this is a this is a benefit we receive in Christ, it is, and yet we aren't passive in receiving the benefit of, of um, progressive sanctification. You know, we're passive in receiving regeneration and and justification and adoption. We're entirely on the receiving end of those good gifts. And we're on the receiving end of sanctification too, but we're also active in pursuing it and seeking it. And really, that's that's the real emphasis of our passage this morning, that we're to put forth effort in our sanctification. We don't earn it, but we put forth effort. We're to present ourselves to God, wholeheartedly devoting ourselves to obedience to Him and His Word. Paul asks in, in Romans 16, verse 16, of our passage here. He says, do you you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In verse 19, he closes this paragraph with an exhortation saying, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. We're not to be passive in the pursuit of holiness. We're we're to be active in the pursuit of holiness. He calls us here to total obligation. He calls us here to total commitment, total abandonment from sin to God. And he uses the, the, the metaphor of slavery to exhort us in this. And he tells us in the beginning of verse 19 that slavery, it's not the the perfect analogy for what he's trying to get at since sanctification really actually leads to freedom as Paul talks about earlier in Romans 6. But he's speaking in, in merely human terms to get at a spiritual reality which doesn't perfectly correspond to the spiritual reality but it illustrates something important for us nonetheless and that's this, that in the pursuit of sanctification we're to act like slaves do toward their master. Not in the sense that we seek to earn our keep or that we're treated as anything less than justified sons and daughters. It's not the sense he's talking about, but in the sense that we ought to be holy and devoted to our God and Lord, just like a slave is holy and totally devoted to obedience to their master. We're to be holy and totally committed to obedience to God, holy and totally devoted to a life of goodness and righteousness and holiness according to the standard set forth in his word. And really he says you're going to do this with something or other. You're going to you're going to serve something or someone ultimately. You're going to be a slave of something or someone. The great theologian Bob Dylan put it right. When he wrote the, the lyrics you may be an ambassador to England or France, you may like to gamble, you may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world or a sociolite with a string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Bobby Dylan, you are exactly right. Another great theologian, African pastor, St. Augustine, compared this to a a horse and its rider, its master, who, who guides it and steers it and tells it where to go. The question is, who's the writer? Is it God guiding and directing according to his word? Or is it Satan and sin directing you? Those are your two options. There's no third option. That's it. And so Paul exhorts us here to present our entire selves as slaves to godliness and righteousness to devote ourselves to our God and Lord, to count ourselves as totally dead to sin and totally alive to righteousness, to set our lives on the altar as a sacrifice to God. In other words, we are to pursue and seek sanctification. The great New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, once rightly said that people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, People do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward obedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. We are not to be passive in pursuit of sanctification and holiness in the Christian life. We're not to loiter on our heavenly journey. We're to strive after the delights of God's sanctifying grace. We're to seek and pursue and put forth effort in this grace of sanctification. But then as we pursue sanctification, we also need to understand that our sanctification is not ultimately from us. We're to seek it, but we don't manufacture it. It's not the result of mere human willpower. Sanctification does not find its source in us. The source of sanctification is God. It's from His presence and His work within us. He is sanctification's source. And and again, the emphasis of our text this morning is really underscoring our responsibility in sanctification, but still Paul does show us here that God is the source of it, ultimately. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Notice how Paul thanks God for our obedience from the heart and our having been set free from slavery to sin. Why does he thank God for that? Because it's God where it ultimately comes from. It's from God. And again, he he, he gives us this gift in Jesus. Paul has already made this exact point in Romans 6, in verses 3 to 5, where he wrote, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life, that we might walk in sanctification. In other words, Jesus not only died on the cross for our justification, he also died so that when we are united with him, we would die to sin. And moreover, he also rose three days later so that we would be empowered to live to righteousness in obedience in his resurrection power. He rose... So that resurrection power would break into this sin-sick world and into our sin-sick lives. And by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit within that we receive at regeneration, God channels that resurrection power of Jesus Christ into us so that we would be empowered and furnished with everything needful to grow in holiness and righteousness and sanctification. And how does this work then? How does this work then? So the sanctification thing being both God's work and ours is something of a mystery. I, I, I don't quite know how to explain it, but this mystery will cause the Apostle Paul to say things like in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, that by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He worked really, really, really hard, Paul said. "I Worked so hard, way harder than any of the other apostles. But then he says, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Or or how about Philippians 2, 12 and 13? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Sanctification is our work. It is. But ultimately, it's God's work, since it's the grace of God within us that causes us to work. It is God who works in us, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. Sanctification is God's work in our work. And one theologian sought to illustrate this in in how he and his father worked on their car while he was growing up. And, And his father was this bomber mechanic in the Second World War. And And a real mechanic type built a a boat from scratch once and all that. And this particular theologian says he was not so much that. Um, He says that, in fact, he says the apple not only fell far from the tree, but it rolled down the street and was crushed by by heavy traffic. And he goes on to say, though, that nevertheless, watching my dad work on our car as a child, I often heard him say things like, now push that down directing my hand to the appropriate lever for the last operation. And then we'd go inside and he would tell my mother, Mike, fixed the car. No doubt, he got his hands dirty. He probably had some oil on his hands and and, and it probably looked like he got some work done. But his father was directing him and guiding him the whole way. And so it is with God's work and our work and our sanctification. We need to be set free. From the power and grip of sin in our lives. We need sanctification, and God and His grace kindly provides it for us in Christ. And so maybe you're here and listening today, and you're not a Christian, but but you sense that that sin has made your life miserable, and you desire freedom from its power and grip on your life, and you've tried to just merely resolve to do better. And and just from that point on, I'm going to do better. Maybe you've tried to get professional help. Maybe you've made commitments and, and been disciplined and gritted your teeth with new commitment to be better. But it's not worked, and it won't work. You need more than you can do on your own to change. You need the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in your life to empower you to change. You need the life of God within you to free you from bondage to sin. You need the grace of God to make you obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching found in God's word. You need God to set you free from slavery to sin. And so if you'll only repent and turn to Christ, he will give you the gift of sanctification. He will empower you in your heart with sanctifying grace. He will progressively change you and progressively make you more like the person he made you to be. Then also, for those of us who are Christians, we need to understand where sanctification ultimately comes from. We, we, we also need to understand this because we too need to, we need to guard ourselves from spiritual pride when it comes to sanctification. We do play a role in our sanctification, but ultimately speaking, sanctification is a work of God within us. We can't manufacture it. We can't will it on our own. We can't self-produce sanctified character and holiness. It takes the resurrection power and presence of God within to produce the fruit of sanctification. And so we should never see growth in the Christian life as cause for spiritual pride. But then we Christians, we also need to understand This doctrine of sanctification in order to guard us from false assurance. Not just spiritual pride, but also false assurance. Because here's the thing, salvation in Christ is a whole package. Salvation is not a buffet where you get to choose the parts and pieces you do or don't like. Just as Christ can't be divided, salvation can't be divided. Each link in this unbreakable chain is an essential part and follows the one before it. And so those who would be assured of their justification and adoption in Christ ought also to expect to see the fruit of sanctification in their lives. J.C. Ryle once said, where there's no sanctification, there is no real life in Christ. In other words, if you're not progressively growing spiritually and morally, if you're not growing in Christ like this, if you're not growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that beautiful character profile of Christ in Galatians 5, and therefore the Christian by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. If you're not progressively seeing victory over sin in your life, however small or slight those victories might be, if you do the same things you did before you became a Christian, you say the same words, you think the same thoughts, you feel the same feelings. If you are indifferent to the glory of God and living a life which is pleasing to Him, if you feel no conviction of sin and no desire for obedience, then there is no real life in Christ there because where there is life in Christ, there is sanctification. There is growth in obedience from the heart and freedom from the bondage of sin. Understand where sanctification comes from. It comes from God and from the life of God within the hearts of His people. God in Christ by the Holy Spirit is sanctification source. God gives us this gift in Christ. He makes us progressively more pure, more righteous, more holy. He improves our character. He puts to death our unrighteousness and our vices and, and brings forth the fruit of righteousness and virtue within. God in Christ sanctifies us. He works in us to progressively make us more and more like Jesus. But then before we close... I'm going to give you just a few exhortations and things to consider in light of this. And, and these are all just going to be uh, kind of bullet point, single word headers. First is disposition. Disposition. When it comes to the pursuit of sanctification of the Christian life, I want you to consider, and if necessary, change your disposition. Because here, here, here's an issue I run into with, in many conversations with, with Christians is that we vastly underestimate the power of God's sanctifying grace in our lives. We live under the tyranny of low expectations when it comes to our sanctification. We, we vastly underestimate the power of God's sanctifying grace. We resign and consign ourselves to very little fruitfulness, very little change, very little growth in obedience and righteousness and goodness. We feel and act. As if we are deterministically stuck in sin and unrighteousness. And sometimes, sometimes it may very well feel that way. We all struggle with, with what we call besetting sins. Besetting sins are those, those kinds of sins which seem to stick. They're the ones that we often run to or commit or have a hard time killing and forsaking and struggle, sometimes struggle with for the rest of our lives. And sometimes as we struggle with those besetting sins, we can kind of start to lose heart and lose hope and feeling like we're helpless and hopeless to fight against sin. My friends, listen to me. The very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead 2,000 years ago lives within us. We are not stuck. You are not deterministically stuck in sin, Christian. And you may need to tell yourself this often. You know, last week we we said those six things that we might need to tell ourselves every single day. You might need to tell yourself every single day when you wake up in the morning, I am free from bondage to sin. I am free from bondage to sin. Because of Christ, because of the presence of the Spirit within you, because of the sanctifying grace of God, you don't have to sin anymore. You don't. It's not that you're unable to sin. You are. Sin is still possible for you, but you don't have to. Sin is no longer the rule in your life, Christian, but the exception. You are free from bondage to sin by the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. You've been given a new nature, a new heart, a new power. You're not stuck. You're not stuck. And listen, it's, it's hard. It's hard. The Christian life, as we consider disposition, maybe we should consider this, that that the Christian life is hard, it's difficult. Discipleship, growth, sanctification is hard, and we live in the midst of a generation that often treats anything that's hard as automatically bad, And, 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 and that treats anything that's hard as bad for you mentally and emotionally and spiritually. I'm going to tell you, that's not the case. In fact, some of the most important things in life are hard. And if you're afraid of difficulty and things that are hard, I don't recommend Christianity because it's difficult. Sanctification, discipleship, growth in the Christian life is hard. And what our current cultural moment, and many of us don't understand, is that the hard things in life are often the most important. And and, and sanctification fits in that category. It's hard, but it's good. It's necessary. And so, you might need to change your disposition from one of hopelessness or helplessness or passivity or laziness, even due to fearing the the hardness of pursuing sanctification, to one of resolve and hope. Wonderful Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle exhorted us in this. He said, Settle it down in your mind that you will aim at the highest degree of holiness, spiritual mindedness, and consecration to God, that you will not be content with any low degree of sanctification. Consider, and if necessary, change your disposition. Rid yourself of the tyranny of low expectations. Embrace the hard work of seeking sanctification. Be resolved. Next, habits. In addition to to disposition, I'm, I'm convinced that habits... are are of the utmost importance for our pursuit of sanctification. Realize that God has given given us means and instruments through which he works to sanctify us. He he has given us, he has promised to work in us through the word, through the, the, the scriptures, through prayer, through sacraments, through the local church in order to grow us and sanctify us. That's why we call these activities means of grace in Christianity. They're means of grace. They're means through which God graciously works in the lives of his people. And so some of us might need to take an inventory of our habits in life. Listen, if you hardly ever pray, if you hardly ever read your Bible and meditate on scripture and memorize scripture, if you gather with God's people part-time, if, if, if you spend hours on social media and watching TV and YouTube videos, listening to, to crap radio or podcasts from godless political commentators, don't be surprised if there's no discernible growth in your life. You need God's Word. You need to read it. You need to hear it proclaimed and applied to your life with God's people. God has designed that faith comes and is strengthened Through his word, by hearing and through the word of Christ, you need to hear God's word in order to grow in sanctification. You also need prayer. J.C. Ryle once said that praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer next week next month we're, we're devoting ourselves to to a month of prayer together we're going to start it off with a with a Sunday evening gathering where we're gathering all together to pray and we're giving you booklets for, for morning and evening prayer and we're calling you to pray with us on Sunday afternoons and 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 uh, on Wednesday afternoons and and to fast on Wednesdays and, and we're calling you to this and and if prayer is an area in your life where you're saying, I just need growth there, this is a good opportunity to devote yourself to to growth in the area of prayer. You need prayer. You need the Lord's Supper. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that that it's there that we have fellowship with the body and blood of Jesus, that we have this, this, this unique remembrance and communion with the living Christ It's only available there. And it's there that we are strengthened and nourished in the Christian life, just as eating and drinking strengthens and nourishes us for for natural life. We need the Lord's supple. So you need accountable community and fellowship with other believers in the local church. That's why the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't neglect gathering together. Don't neglect community in the local church. You need that stirring up to loving good works. You need that encouragement and sanctification. We all need it. These kinds of habits are an utter necessity because they are the primary means through which God has promised to work in the lives of his people. But then they're not the only means. We also want to look at suffering. Don't despise suffering in the Christian life. Rejoice in suffering because it is another means through which God works to sanctify his people. I remember when I was in, where I first came across this verse, 2008, Maranga Prana in Brazil. I was reading my Bible and I, I came across this verse, totally revolutionized the way that I saw suffering and difficulty and hardship in the Christian life. Romans 5, 3 and 5. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why do we rejoice in our sufferings? That's weird. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Is suffering pleasant? No. But Paul says we can rejoice in it Because God uses suffering in the lives of His people to produce endurance and character and hope in His people. He uses suffering to sanctify His people. It's for good reason that J.C. Ryle once wrote that affliction is one of God's medicines. By it, He often teaches lessons which would be learned no other way. By it, He often draws souls away from sin in the world which would otherwise have perished everlastingly. Health is a great blessing but sanctified disease is a greater. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what we naturally desire, but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. Thousands at the last day will testify with David, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Rejoice in your sufferings, Christian God, is at work through them to make you more like Jesus. And lastly, gospel. In pursuit of sanctification, keep your eyes on the gospel, which is just another way of saying keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Keep your eyes on him. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that it is by keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ that we're sanctified. He says there that in beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the image of into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is why we pursue the habits that we pursue in the first place. The means of grace, because it's there that we behold the beauty of the face of Jesus Christ. Really, the end of of suffering is that God would use it to clear our clouded vision so that we might see Him more clearly. And it's in beholding the glory of Jesus Christ by gazing at his beautiful face that we are changed and sanctified and made to be more like him. And understand by, by beholding, Paul's saying that that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are to meditate on the beauties and excellencies of Jesus Christ, to think about his heart, his person, his work, his passion, his teaching, his righteousness, his cross and resurrection, his ascension, his ongoing ministry of intercession at God's right hand, on his return, on his glory. We're to think on these things and rejoice in these things and glory in these things and marvel in these things, and by so doing, we will be made more like Jesus. Just as the old poem says regarding sanctification, to run and work the law commands. The gospel gives me feet and hands. The one requires that I obey, the other does the power convey. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, through our union and communion with Him, the power for sanctification is conveyed to us. That we might be made more like Christ. And so, my friends, if you would be sanctified, consider and, if necessary, change your disposition. Take inventory of your habits and, if necessary, change your habits. Rejoice in suffering and remember the gospel. Behold the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ and be satisfied in Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the the gift of sanctifying grace that you have given us in Christ Jesus, that double grace, that double benefit, that double cure, saving us from wrath and making us pure. And we pray for growth in it in our lives, in each of us, that we might rest in you, be more satisfied in you, and that we might live more and more empowered by the Holy Spirit to be made more like you. We pray that as we come to the Lord's Supper, that you would give us spiritual eyes to behold the beauty and glory and excellencies of Jesus Christ here. That we might be transformed from one degree of glory to the next for the sake and glory of your name. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.